Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum. All right. Thank you so much, Kate Martin, for everything that you've been doing to make this podcast a success. And welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathrum, and today is episode number one. We're so excited that we're here with our very first episode, uh, and today we've got an incredible conversation that we'd like to share with you that we had with Sonia Mundra. Sonia is the president of Chaniga Analytic. It's a part of Chaniga Corporation, and she just shares an outstanding journey of how she went from being an accountant to president. One of the things that she shared with us was be a risk seeker be a risk seeker. And and that resonated so much that we titled the episode, Be a Risk Seeker. And just really appreciate her taking the time out to, to speak with us and just give us all of her experience. We know that it's a long episode. We will have clips uh, coming out soon on YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram. Remember to follow us on all of our social media so that you don't miss the message. If you hear something today that resonates with you in this episode, please don't keep it to yourself. Make sure to share it with someone, a coworker, an employee, a family member, someone you care about. If you're on Apple Podcasts, subscribe and rate. If you're on Spotify, remember to follow. We don't want you to miss the message, and we don't want to take up too much more time. We want to get right into it. Just wanted to say thank you for joining us, and we're just so excited to continue to do this, and we hope that you find something that resonates with you the way that it resonated with us. Yeah, well, welcome. Uh, thank you for doing this. We're here today with Sonia Mundra. She is the president of Chaniga Analytic Business Solutions. We're here in their office, uh, and today is the very first episode of DC Local Leaders Podcast. Uh, it's a podcast where we're just going around to the leaders of our local community. Um, that's government contractors, tech firms, nonprofits. And speaking with the leaders of those companies and getting them to open up to us about their story, their successes, uh, and how they lead, manage, and connect with other people. So I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm super honored that I get to be guest number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, and I called you cold. Um, you know, but I, I called you cold, and and then I, I think I sent an email, and then mm -hmm. I called you back, and, mm -hmm. and you picked up, and I really appreciate you doing that. Um, we chatted for a little bit, and and. You know, it's just something I'm passionate about, and I'm really happy to be here. Your career stuck out to me in a huge way, just from where you started to where you are now, and, and it's still not over. Um, but that, that story is exactly why we're doing this and, and what I want to, uh, to talk about today. So I really appreciate you being here. It's my absolute pleasure. I hope that um, everybody listening, you know, if they can even get one nugget of, of good information, um, that'll, then I'll know that uh, we've accomplished our goal today. Yeah, for sure. Chiniga. Am I saying that right? Or is it Chiniga? Chiniga. Chiniga. Mm -hmm. The Chiniga Business Analytic Solutions is the name of your company. Yes. But it's a division of Chiniga Mios. 
Correct. And what's MIO stand for? So MIO used to stand for Military Intelligence and Operations Support. Okay. Um, that's a holdover name from when the unit started in 1998, um, and you know they shortened it up to MIOS because um, they a lot of the folks heard military um, and they were like, oh, you guys just service DoD. So to show that we service all federal government customers, now we're calling it MIOS. Okay. Okay. Um, so I looked at your website and we got a lot of information from that. The Chiniga people look like they're pretty resilient people. Um, you know, there was got what an earthquake in the sixties, which caused a tsunami, uh, which wiped out 26 people, which was a third of their population. I think I got that math right. I hope I did. Um, then in not even 25 years later, there was an oil tanker spill, right? Which mm-hmm. also devastated them. Um, and then in the nineties, the mid nineties, I think when they were, were recovering from that, they sold a large portion of their property to the United States government and formed a government contracting agency. Yep, that's correct. So um, the Chiniga people are extremely resilient. Um, they have gone through a lot of hardship um, and they've overcome it. Um, so natural disasters, like you mentioned, like the tsunami, the earthquake. Um, you know, it's funny because our uh, CEO actually, um, he was there as a young boy. Um, through that that incident. Wow. And he remembers it. I mean, he was probably only four years old and he survived, right? Um, that earthquake and, and subsequent tsunami. And he told us about it. And, and it really, frankly, sounds terrifying. I mean, the it was a huge tsunami. Um, it was one of the biggest earthquakes ever recorded in the history of the United States. Um, you know, and over and over again, you see that these people are overcoming tragedy after tragedy and so resilient that they're able to build back up again. Um, And then the other incident that you mentioned was a tanker oil spill, um, you know, polluting all of their water that they fish in. I mean, it was absolutely devastating. It was an Exxon Valdez spill. And they say that to this day in the Chiniga Bay, there's, you can still see a little bit of the oil, even though it happened so many decades ago. That just shows you. Um, how crazy it was. And I think fishing was the main, that's how they they fed themselves and supported themselves. So that was devastating to their economy and how they even did anything. It was almost probably the worst thing that could have happened. So, um, you know, but as you can see, they're able to, um, you know, rebuild their communities. And, um, you know, with the money that they took, they were very smart. They started a going concern. Um, And unlike uh, some of the other Alaska Native tribes, Chiniga is um, not a regional corporation. It's a village-owned corporation, so we have very few shareholders. Um, we have less than 150 shareholders. Um, and the other thing that's unique about Chiniga is that the company, the profits from the company, are um, are the only ones it's the only form of income that the Chiniga people have. So the, unlike some of the other Alaska natives that have oil holdings and other types of holdings, this corporation is the primary and, and in many cases only form of subsist, subsistence that the, um, that the Chiniga people have. So it's definitely um, – I keep that in mind as I'm, you know, no pressure, right? Yeah. Um, so as I'm going through my day-to-day job that, you know, these, these Chiniga folks are, are dependent upon, you know, our corporation. 
But I also find that it's a really positive thing because our board is very focused, um, unlike maybe some of the other tribes. Um, they're very focused on, you know, the dealings and the holdings and the business that we do in the corporation. Um, so we get a lot of support from them, right? They're not distracted by other business ventures um, and other types of holdings where, you know, the board is turning over all the time. And that's another thing that's also unique about Chiniga is that our board has remained relatively constant over the last 30 years. So that's really contributed to the stability overall of Chiniga Corporation. Yeah. Yeah. And I can tell just from the way that you describe it, you're passionate about what you do. Um, and it and it shows uh, their resilience and what they've been doing. I, I guess that obviously affects the culture of this business, right? I mean, It does. I mean, they very much are like, you know what, you have to, if there are hardships, you have to pick on and, you know, you have to, you have to get on with it. You know, you pick up and get on with it. So um, definitely um, a great attitude, a great backbone, right? And, and you know, we want to, we want to, look at new ventures. We want to make sure we're keeping up with the market, but we also understand that their goal, what their goals are, right? Which is to preserve their language, heritage, culture. So, you know, we want to get involved in things, but we don't want to do anything that's necessarily crazily risky and things like that. Um, the Chinica Corporation is almost like a holding portfolio. So in the sense that they're very diversified in a lot of different businesses. So Mios does government contracting and some commercial work, but we also have a, you know, basically a fast food, um, you know, holding company. Yeah. Chini what kind of fast food? Um, it's, it's, <laughs> so we actually, I think bought some some like Popeyes and some really? other, so like yeah. franchises. You yeah, got into like yeah, yeah, and they have one called Slapfish. I think that's in Colombia. Um, but Chinica Foods is an actual company. So um, you know, some people have told me, hey, we've we've seen when we go on our credit card, like I bought something from somewhere and it said Chiniga Foods on it. So, which I, I think is good because, you know, you can't just rely on one type of industry for your livelihood. You should diversify your portfolio. Yeah. They took the the private equity sort of, mm -hmm. you know, capital venture approach. Um, but you are the president of CABS. That's right. So yes. specifically CABS, what is it that that line of business does? Yeah. So Chiniga Analytic Business Solutions, or CABS, is um, small disadvantaged business. We are wholly owned by our parent company, Chiniga Corporation. We have been in business for um, almost three years. We are 8A certified by the SBA, um, the Small Business Administration. Um, we just entered year two of the program. We are uh, primarily focused on government contracting, so serving the needs and the mission of our government customers. Um, and our core competencies uh, are in, you know, IT, cyber, um, training, um, some administrative support, and we have some logistical capabilities as well. So you said you've been in business for three years? Yes, CABS has been. And I've been with Chiniga for, it'll actually be seven years in March. Right. So you're the president of CABS, but you joined Chiniga as something different. What was that? Yes. Uh, so I started out um, on the line uh, as a staff member, um, as a company program controller for a subsidiary company or what we call a sister company um, that has now graduated from the 8A program. Okay. Um, when I first started there, we had 
two contracts. <laughs> and the company over so many years has been very successful and so successful that it's now graduated um, from the 8A program and is, and is, and is uh, viable in the, um, you know, the full and open and large business environment. So, um, yeah, I am a CPA. Uh, so I came on uh, managing uh, that subsidiary's financials. Um, and I had an opportunity to grow um, as that company grew. Chaniga sponsored me to get my PMP, um, and then I started working about seven months later as the operations manager, so um, kind of leveraging my financial expertise, not just to my manage financials, but also manage the other aspects, the people management, HR, recruiting, et cetera, et cetera. Well, yeah, and that's, and that's really the meat of what I was hoping to get from you today in our conversation. Um, you know, it, it's just looking at your career path and wanting to get that story of your career path and talk about those impactful moments that have shaped how you lead, manage, and connect with other people and other people, including yourself, right? Um, or just people in general, including yourself. Um, because you started off as an accountant at a consulting firm. Mm -hmm. um, and was that right out of college? Yeah, so I started out as a financial analyst with Accenture, the consulting firm, yep, right out of college. And then I worked as a research analyst um, at PricewaterhouseCoopers prior yeah. to coming to Chinica. Did you, so at that time though, when you were in college, did you think what I want to do is be an accountant? And and was that at that moment, that was what you wanted to do when you were focused on that? I always assumed that I would be managing something in financial, you know, some financial manager or some sort of accounting manager managing financials. Right. Yeah. And so, but now um, you are, you're, you're, well, you're managing a company, which obviously there's financials there, but there's a lot of technical requirements to manage this company because you guys do a lot of IT solutions. And right. program management. Um, how is, and you mentioned that you're a PMP. Um, how, you know, how, how did you make that transition from going to, well, so first you're an accountant, which typically accountants really aren't seen as being out of the box thinkers too much because they can't mm -hmm. be and they shouldn't be, right? Because right. they're supposed to do um, a certain function. Mm -hmm. um, how did you, what, what did you do? Were you, were you taking classes? Did you go to grad school? Did you start reading? Did you have a mentor? Like, talk to us about that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, I did a lot of reading uh, up on different types of technology um, to understand our, our business lines better. Um, I asked a lot of questions when we were managing projects, even reading the contracts and things like that. I had a little bit of um, business law and contracts law experience from taking um, my CPA. So it wasn't too hard to um, understand the contractual and requiremental part of, of that. But yeah, I did a lot of reading um i listened to a lot of podcasts and what were you listening to <laughs> um so i i like to listen to um how i built this yeah and the harvard business review so and and do you follow anyone like who who are some of the people that you use either as a mentor that you actually know that you get to meet with and have coffee and ask for advice and and then what about speakers like Brene brown or uh, Mel Robbins, there's a number of them, to like Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, anything like that. Is that something, is that part of part of what you follow, what you read, or, you know, anything? Share with us an author, a book that you read recently that you can recommend for us. Yeah, um, so I would say um, those podcasts that I recommended are are really good. Um, How I Built This is a great one. It's it's by NPR, and um, you know he interviews people. the 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 gentleman interviews people that say you know exactly. It's exactly what it sounds like. How I built my business, and you hear about 
there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of risk. Um, and, and I think we don't think about that. Like we just assume when we see successful people that they've always been successful. Right. They always will be successful. And then you hear about like, for example, um, I, I love to travel right? Or I used to love to travel yeah. <laughs> prior to COVID. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, uh, they did one on Lonely Planet, you know, the, the one that makes the guidebooks and things like that. And they just got into it. You know, the owners just got into it um, for, you know, the love of the game. It wasn't something that they did to make money. Um, they encountered a lot of difficulties, um, obstacles throughout the way. I mean, when we look at Lonely Planet now, I mean, they are the guidebook right and but back in the day when they were going to you know back in the 70s they were traveling through asia traveling through south america there really wasn't any information for you know the european or the american um reader on these planets there was no good guidebook at all because nobody really yeah nobody went there there, right and and was willing to share their knowledge so being able to um you know and they really transformed the industry because you'll notice like you might remember back in the day I remember back in the day when I was a little girl if we wanted to go on a trip my mom would go and meet with the tra- our travel agent yeah, Debbie there was a person that yeah. would schedule this you would have to do this with someone it's not like you just go on the internet I we're about the same age I think and I didn't we didn't have internet I was right. probably in high school right when exactly. we when we got internet yep. and then it was dial up you know yeah with a compact <laughs> right. computer and and then inevitably like I'd be on the internet and someone would call and then or they'd pick up the phone it's like you and know. you would get cut off from the yeah. internet yeah or you'd be told by your parents to get off the right. internet because they needed to use the phone right they needed to <laughs> right exactly so especially like going on a vacation you had to go to a person yep. who had all of the booking information they knew where the hotel you only mm-hmm. got hotel information because they gave it to you right um and then you just assumed that that was right and correct and then you signed up with them and that's how you went on a vacation right and then you also like if you wanted to go to some place that was a little bit out of the box or even in the box you'd need a tour guide and and you know you'd have to go with a guide there was no concept of oh i'm just gonna take this book and i'm just gonna do it myself right right and so do you see leadership of a company being somewhat like that where you don't really know what to expect but you do at least you have some guides here right because you have people in some of the other business lines that Chaniga has. Mm-hmm. Um, but talk to me about, so we, we, we kind of, we were talking about the PMP uh, initially. And, and I guess my question there was, how do you find, it, is it difficult for you at all to manage technical people not coming directly from a technical background? Or how have you worked around that? Or, or does that even come up? Yeah. So um, a lot of people will say, well, I I mean, it's funny because I don't consider myself to necessarily be technical. I'm just technical in my field. Right. Um, So I think um, the folks, they know they know and I don't think they necessarily expect someone who's in senior level management to know every single thing about their particular niche of technology, because even people that are really technologically savvy, like either they know you know, cybersecurity test and evaluation. They may not know a different part of technology, right? Um, or because it's so specific and you have to be so deep. So you may be a cyber expert. You may or may not know enterprise architecture, right? Or you may know, you know, enterprise architecture and not know some other type of technology. You may not know AI, right? right. Like or emerging technology, right? So they're open-minded about... 
I think so. I mean, I think as what what garners credibility is that people under as long as you have the ability to basically understand what they're doing. So you need to know enough just to understand, okay, well, this is just just to make sure that they know you understand. Right. And I think people understand that I'm technical. Um, I'm I, I'm not an expert and I don't need to be because I'm not necessarily the PM anymore yeah. managing the, the project. Yeah. So how did you how did you make the jump from being a, a project manager to getting into leadership and what was that like? Um, I mean, I just your job seems like there's got to be a lot of vulnerability and fear wrapped around that um, just in making decisions, knowing if it's the right one or not. It's based on experience. And I'm sure that um, you have people to, to lean on and talk to. But um, when you're a tech, when you're in a project, because I've, I've done project management before, before I was a commercial real estate broker, I did real estate development. It's a different type of project management because that's construction based. Mm-hmm. Um, but in every project, we generally knew that there was going to be certain um, highlights and certain milestones that we needed to reach. There was generally a timeline that was expected to reach them. Um, you know, there was a schedule, it was dialed in. It was more. I kind of knew like it would be difficult to get there because you never knew what would happen in between that one point to the next, but when you knew where to go, when you're trying to grow a company, it seems like you, you put together a budget, you put together a business plan for the next following year, but you don't always know if that's the right move. Like what, how do you navigate all of that? And then yeah. how did you make the jump from going from being a PMP to that leadership position? Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. There is a ton of risk um, involved in being in a leadership role. Um, So one thing that I've had to really learn how to do is make sure that we're concentrating on our existing customers. Um, We don't we don't want to be in a situation where the customer says, you look, you're not meeting AQLs or you're not meeting your deliverables. So um, having checks and balances. So, for example, you know, we've got PMs and we've got I've got an operations manager who supervises them. But, you know, once in a while, I will also directly call the customer. I'm not necessarily the customer interface all the time. And I'll say, hey, how are we doing? How's our PM doing? How's our ops manager doing? How's everything going on the project, right? Just to check in. So to have those checks and balances to make sure, sometimes I do meet with customers um, operationally as well, um, especially if I feel like in the beginning, um, especially the first 90 days. I mean, that's when a project is most likely to fail. So I usually like, and that's also a transition time, right? For everybody, for the staff, the employees, everybody. So that's when I kind of really invest a lot of time in the beginning. And then once the project, once we've kind of stabilize the project, then it, it, you know, it pretty much runs and I like to check in less periodically, but I try to lean, um, lean forward a lot in the beginning. Like I always say, I, one thing I learned was if there's something hard or there's a problem or the customer's angry, um, I like to run toward problems. So instead of just, I mean, it's never comfortable to have those conversations, especially in the beginning, but if there's something that really needs to be, um, problem solved, and that's really all that I do all day long is solve problems with my team um then we have to i have to i've had to learn to run toward problems and i learned that when i started working as an operations manager yeah because they're not going to go away they're not right the obstacle becomes the way that's a you know a stoic thing and and um there's actually a book called that um and just like I, i work out with a lot of people we crossfit and it's um you know a lot of the 
the, the fall forward attitude of just, you know, um, get comfortable with being uncomfortable and, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And it just kind of trains the body and trains the mind to always do that. Um, that's, and that's probably why you're in the position you're in, right? Um, because you have that mindset of, of just because it's difficult or it's hard or it's going to be uncomfortable, that's not a reason to avoid it. Um, were, yeah. were you always that way or did, did you develop that skill? How was that? How did that come about? No. And it's funny because, um, I will tell you that, you know, I'm Indian. So as an Indian, when I was a girl, right, I'm an Indian woman now. Um, we are not socialized <laughs> in general to be risk takers right? Uh, Indian women are not. And I think the best thing for those that are out here, um, and, and it may be Indian culture, it may be beyond Indian culture, um, is, is, you know, it for anybody that has a daughter, I would really encourage them to train and to teach their daughters, especially sons and daughters, that um, risk and reward are something that are directly correlated. And to you know, it's a really different mindset to teach your kids and especially your daughters to be risk seekers, not just not just risk averse. OK, take we'll take some risk, but to literally be risk seekers in all that they do. And the sooner that they can train them to do that from a young age, the better. Now, I don't encourage anybody to do anything that will jeopardize their own safety, um, because I know safety is a big issue with with women. Um, and with girls. So, um, and I will tell you, I have to travel a lot by myself. And there are certain actions that I take and certain actions that I don't take um, that no man would ever have to think about, right? When I'm traveling by myself, right? So people can't see me, but those who know me know I'm a very petite woman. So it's just a matter of, sometimes it's a matter of me scheduling my flight. So I get in and I'm able to get to my hotel before it gets dark, something like that right? Just to avoid that type of thing. So, um, you know, but so what that means, so when I say be a risk seeker, that doesn't mean don't take the trip and go see the client. It just means schedule it and just try, you know, I try not to be in a situation where I'm kind of alone in an isolated place in the dark and in in a city that I'm not familiar with. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And encouraging that, I think from a young age, I don't have kids, but I used to be one. (laughs) <laughs> um, and I was raised with a significant amount of shame and guilt. Right. Um, and that got programmed yeah. in there. Me too. Right. Uh, yeah. No, I, right. I believe me, I know. Yeah. Um, you know, we would love you if you were better, but you know, right. since you're not, we can't, I mean, you know, you got straight A's, but your room is a mess. So why right. can't you be like this person? <laughs> right. Um, I get it a hundred percent. Um, but, but, you know, so, but what the way you speak, I, what I've learned, um, from a number of different people and just in my own experience, um, the the way that we speak to our kids becomes their internal voice. Mm-hmm. And and I learned that because my internal voice was a person who loved me and was doing the best they could uh and can um and just didn't realize that they were they were programming a message that they didn't mean to. Um and and I, it's not their fault, right? Maybe that's just the way I received it. But I did receive it and I acted upon it whether it was consciously or subconsciously my entire life until probably about six years ago, I'm full on 37. Um, and not that I have anything horrible or bad or, I mean, you know, I've had ups and downs and, and well, some significant changes came about and that's kind of what brought me to this podcast and even doing, you know, any of the stuff that I've done um, in the past. But hearing you say, you know, if you're, if you're teaching a child to take healthy risks and get outside of your comfort zone mm-hmm. and don't just stay 
where you're comfortable, where you know something, try it. And if you, you know, there's no failure, there's only lessons. Um, they'll hear that too, right? That will become their internal voice. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that will follow them into adulthood and they'll learn their own lessons and make their own mistakes too. But at least they'll have that message when they're going forward. Um, but so where along the line did you decide was that because that wasn't what you were taught? Mm-hmm. How old were you? Were you? So there was one question that I, I had sent you previously and it was about a jumping off point. And I ask mm-hmm. everyone about this. Um, and the jumping off point is generally, you know, a point in, in our lives where we can't continue doing what we're doing, but we're unsure about what we need to do next. Right. We're looking for something different to happen. Finally, get to that light bulb moment where we realize that it's me. Like right. it's not everyone else. Right. The world doesn't hate me. They didn't all call each other and say, let's right. hate Philip today. <laughs> right? It's me. It's my actions. The accountability is with me. And if I don't like the way something's going in my life, I need to change my behavior. And that's scary and that's hard. That's vulnerable. It it feels bad because um, we don't want to be bad. We want to be good. So now I'm saying I'm bad. Um, but But were you ever at that point where, like, when was that point? How old were you? What was going on? And talk to me about that. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> I think people have a big jolt when they come out of college, right? Because it's like, oh, I got straight A's. I'm so smart. Um, And you don't necessarily have to be a risk taker, right, to get straight A's. In fact, one might argue that, you know, that risk-averse behavior is what gets you great grades and and the great job. And and that gets you the ticket into, you know, working at at the place that you want to work at. But the problem is that if you're not confident in yourself, Um, then, uh, you know, I found with myself, I felt like I had as much to offer as anyone else, but I felt like I was getting overlooked, um, at some, not at Chaniga, but at some of my prior jobs, um, when I had as much, if not more to offer than some of my peers, right? And they noticed the difference was that they were very confident and aggressive in what they were saying. So that's how I learned to become more confident and aggressive, um, in what I do. And that's not a, a natural thing that we especially like I said as an Indian girl and a woman we I mean we don't and it's and 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 it's a double-edged sword too right like women get punished for being aggressive too and I and I have been punished for it (laughs) Um, from from who from like family members or bosses and in the workplace or I've been been punished in the workplace. Yeah. Absolutely. I've been punished in the workplace. I've been punished um, for, you know, basically, quote unquote, acting like a man, what what they perceive to be acting like a man. I've had, you know, I've been called abrasive. I've been called lots of things. Um, And I know that I wouldn't be called that um, if I were a man acting the exact same way. But, you know. um, But your response to that doesn't seem like it was let me get angry, let me shut down. Your response to that seems like it was something different. What was that? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't really care, right? Because, um, you know, I run a company and I work in sales. And I always say sales is actually a great job for women um, because the numbers speak for themselves, right? And and, And so my job is to grow the company, um, and to bring in sales and then to operate the contracts and operate the requirements that we have. Um, so um, if I'm doing a good job with that, right, and I'm getting good feedback from my customers, then, you know, you don't become a CEO be- if you're trying to win a, a, a popularity contest. You're not going to be able to get people to like you 100% of the time 
right? Um, so that's just something that, you know, that's just kind of par for the course that kind of just comes with the territory. So, you know, I have probably, let's say out of 100 people, even if I get, you know, 80, 90, whatever, like people to like me, um, there's always going to be people that don't agree with um, things. And, you know, sometimes I do look back when I'm a little bit more mature and I'm like a little bit later and I'm like, yeah, maybe I could have handled that differently. I could have been um, maybe I could have been less abrasive, you know, um, but, you know, um, I, I think, you know, we're all we're all learning. So, um, but that is definitely something that I felt like I, I had to learn how to become more confident. And the problem is, or not the problem, but the thing that I've also learned is that if you don't have confidence in yourself, then others are going to mimic that and they're not going to have confidence in you. So if you are going to step in to a capabilities pitch and you're going to be competing against all these other vendors to try to get, you know, the 10 million, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollar contract, you know, if you're not confident, people can smell that on you. And they're like, well, if you're not confident or you're nervous, then why should, why should I, you know, then if you, you don't even believe in yourself, if then you why should I help yeah. you yeah. or why should I give our requirement to you? Yeah. It's an inside job. I've, I've heard that from a number of different people, leaders of companies, uh, leaders of projects, um, teamwork. We, 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 we just hear that message all the way, you know, across the board that it's an inside job. Um, and, and confidence, but confidence, I, I found that um, at, at least I don't think the, the, the Marines, you guys are a big uh, military friendly mm -hmm. uh, employment group. I bet they, they probably say this all the time is that we don't rise to the occasion. We fall to the highest level of our training, mm -hmm. right, um, of our preparation. So, you know, uh, I, I think that that just shows out when you when you when you're prepared, you end up being confident that you can deliver this message. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something earlier. Um, one of the things I had to learn, I, you know, I, I used to be a people pleaser and I never call that selfish, right? I would say I'm spending all day worrying about what other people are thinking. How could I ever be selfish? Um, and I learned the lesson that if, you know, if 80 out of a hundred people generally like me, why would I focus on the 10, on the 20 that don't, right? But that's where my mind goes, that 20%. Uh, and I think you use 90 and 10. And I've heard that all leaders, you know, at some point they pick up on that message that you're never going to make everyone happy and you can't focus on the 10% because you're robbing that 90% mm -hmm. of the people that you could impact their life. You could bring them joy on a daily basis. You can lead them in this company where they support themselves. Um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, that is actually, um, that's more harmful right, than it would be to, to focus on those, the, the 10 or 15 people, and especially in a sales environment, because I'm in one too, right, and we hear no all the time, right? right? Um, I work for Transwestern, it's a commercial real estate brokerage firm, it's um, just as big, it's a national platform, and we're calling a lot of the same mm -hmm. uh, people that all of the other firms are calling, and we're hearing no, and then sometimes people react emotionally because they've been called too much, and but, you know, if, if I had 20 conversations that day that went well, I can't focus on the two that didn't because I'm robbing those other 20 people of the opportunity for me to be able to help them. Um, and, and that was just a big lesson I've learned. And um, I don't know, that's just kind of what resonated with me when you were talking. Um, but, you, you know, 
we never got to to your mentors. Who are you? Do you have people in your life? Do you have other business owners? Do you are you part of a group or an association? Do you get together with people? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, when I need advice, um, I rely on, you know, my boss, who's the president of the strategic business unit. His name is John Campagna. Um, that's a person um, who, you know, he's been uh, working with Shiniga and been a company president. Um, and now, of course, he's the strategic business unit president for over 20 years. So he's seen a lot, um, lots of lessons learned. Um, there's very little, frankly, that he hasn't seen. So, you know, I'll go to him and I'll say, what do you think about X, Y, and Z? Um, and and more than likely, he's seen it and he has some some advice, right? Yeah. Um, so that's the person that I turn to first. Um, the other Folks that I turn to are some of my peers um, at Chiniga, so other company presidents. Um, some of the company presidents that we have have been at Chiniga for, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, and they've run multiple companies. Um, so there isn't much, again, there isn't much that they haven't seen um, as it relates to government contracting. They've kind of seen, you know, the ups and the downs of it and the different trends and things like that. So, you know, those are folks that I turn to um, when I need, um, when I have questions about my business. Um, and, you know, I turn to my family as well, um, just just to, you know, because they don't work at Chiniga, right? So they probably have a little bit more unbiased view and they're just coming in as a total outsider. Yeah. Yeah. And you have, you're married, have kids and everything too? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I am married. Um, we have two children who are, um, 11 and eight, two boys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How'd you guys meet? Um, (laughs) so, uh, we met through, um, family, family friends, um, you know, uh, so, um, yeah, we that's that's how we met through our yeah. community. <laughs> Were you married in your 20s? Mm-hmm. And so you started having kids then and Yeah. Do you uh like how did that affect like some of the decisions you made centered around work and where you wanted to be and 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 what you wanted to do next? Was that more of a motivation that you know, hey, I want to change things or was it So, um when I had um when we had our kids, when we had our first child, I decided to um to leave the workforce. And I left the workforce for a couple of years and we ended up having our second child. And so um, it's a little bit unusual to leave the workforce um, for several years in this area. I mean, I left the workforce for four, four years. So um, it's, it's probably not unusual across all of the United States, but it is unusual, I think, in this particular area in Northern Virginia. Um, and, uh, you know, I was able to get back into the workforce without too much hassle. Um, so I would actually encourage those that are thinking about, um, leaving the workforce temporarily, uh, you know, um, for any reason, um, to, to do that, whether it's taking care of a loved one or, you know, a family member, a parent, a child. Um, most people are, I think, pretty, um, pretty okay with it. Um, if you can explain why. Um, And then I have done a lot of hiring as a hiring manager. So, um, you know, in fact, we recently, as our program controller, we recently hired um, uh, an individual who was a stay-at-home parent uh, who wanted to get back into the workforce. So um, I definitely, having that experience, um, 
never really look at any a gap on anyone's resume negatively. I know that's not how everybody operates, but at least I can do my part, right? Well, that's impactful, right? You had that experience that you can share and you understand and you look at that from a different lens, right? You're mm-hmm. able to resonate with that, that you did what you had to do at the time and now you're ready to do something different. Um, yeah. Was there any fear? Like, how, what were you feeling about trying to get back out there and how, what was it like actually looking around and how did you know what you wanted to do? Because you're coming from accounting at a consulting firm at that mm-hmm. point, right? Right, exactly. So, um, you know, I looked around. It took me about, it took me three months to find a job when I yeah. decided I was going to look. And so I applied full time. I made sure that I had childcare, reliable childcare in place, um, and actually started my kids at the childcare, you know, even part time just to ease them in a little bit. And that way I could concentrate even just two hours a day, three hours a day on, um, you know, applications or interviews and stuff like that. Um, so yeah. And then I, um, I actually applied online on Indeed or something like that um, to my job at Chinika and did not know anybody here at this company, did not know what an Alaska Native corporation was beyond looking at their website. You know, I had obviously worked in government contracting before and my job was, you know, to ma- the job was to manage financials. And so the location um, was really good for me. It was really close to my home. And that was a consideration. I'll just be dead honest with you coming back with, you know, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Um I I wanted that was a priority to make sure that I could find something close by for my commute and um, be able to like if I needed to rush home or there was some emergency or something like that, that I could do that, especially because my husband was working in D.C. at the time. Um, So um, and then I looked at the job description and I was like, okay, this looks like something I could do. Um, This looks similar to something I've done before. It looks like something I could handle because I'd worked at a lot of, you know, quote unquote, high pressure jobs, but never with children. So yeah, I was nervous um, when I first came in that my technology skills were outdated or that I wasn't going to be able to handle it. But that didn't really happen. Um, You'd be surprised. I mean, not a lot changes. I mean, we all still have to get up, get dressed in the morning, put on (laughs) some decent clothes, you know, proper interviewing skills, speaking skills, you know, you know, we still all use Microsoft Excel, you know, not many, I mean, and the new version had come up. So I was like, you know, I don't know, you know, the old school version of Excel, and now they've made it horrible with their new buttons. And I was like, God, I can't find any buttons anymore (laughs) on Excel. But you know, nothing really changed. I mean, people are still people even after a couple of years. So if you've got training, experience, um, certifications, education, um, you know, and and understand how to work in a professional environment. I mean, what is really going to change in two years, three years, right. whatever? You know, right. I just I feel like people are under so much pressure to continue on um, after they have um, kids, or even if they want to take time off. And I know I was really fortunate, and I know not everybody has this opportunity. I was fortunate that I had a choice. Um, a lot of parents don't have a choice financially, but um, for those that have the choice and want to do it, I would encourage them to do it because I'm I'm a case study to show that, look, I did it. And, um, you know, I came back to Chiniga at um, less pay than I was making before I left. Um, but I knew that it wasn't relevant what I made before. Um, because that was what that that pay was what the job was offering. And I knew that company was growing and I knew they couldn't afford a ton more. Um, and obviously, I just was like, you know what, I'm going to come in, I'm going to get my foot in the door. So it worked out clearly. Yeah, yeah. Now you're the president of cabs. I mean, it, it obviously went well. 
<laughs> so, I mean, I, you know, I got it. Like I said, it was a great low pressure way in that staff role to learn a lot because it's not like they were expecting me to know anything. So it sounds like you focused on the skill set and not the money at the time. Right. I mean, you right. didn't make the, the money or the salary that's a deciding factor as to whether or not you were going to take the job. You had some other things that you it, it met a criteria that you fit mm-hmm. that 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 it fit that you made for yourself. Uh, and then you made the best of it, it sounds like. Along that way, um, were you, did you volunteer to take on more responsibility or how did that come around? Were you driving the bus? Did you realize, look, I've learned these skills, I have these skills, I'm applying them here and now I want a new challenge? And what, what was that process like? I, how do you even call that meeting? What do you? <laughs> yeah, I was extremely aggressive about, while at Chaniga, about um, wanting to take on more responsibility. So, um, you know, I would tell my supervisors, look, um, I, I'm, you know, I, I have some free time. Um, you know, I was a salaried employee at that time. So I would tell them, Hey, look, I have some free time. Um, you know, it doesn't take all day to manage financials when you only have two contracts, right? So it's not a full-time job. So I was like, you guys seem really busy. If you even need me to sit in on a meeting or take some meeting minutes or whatever, like if there's other stuff that I can help with, maybe reading through some contracts or, or whatever you would like me to do, um, then let me know, you know, I'm here. Right. Yeah. Rather than sit at your desk and surf the internet or do, you know, whatever you got up out of your seat and went and asked for something else to do or wanted a newer challenge. Yeah. Is that advice you would give to some, let's say someone in their twenties that, you know, someone that, that meets you, that looks at your career that says, you know, I want to be in her position at some point, especially, you know, whether it's a a, a man or woman or whatever, Mm -hmm. what advice would you give them if they're, you know, just help them understand when they're, when they're starting out in a job, you know, what are some of the things that helped you be successful in that position, but also get to where you are now? Yeah. And like I said, I have two boys who are eight and 11. So, you know, what I tell them is, you know, um, the world is competitive. Um, no one owes you anything. Uh, and if you want to, um, achieve things in life and there are things that you I mean you you guys want to you know have the nice cars and the nice home you know um because you know how kids are they're like oh mommy I want that or I want this and I'm like if you want it I was like you I was like if you want these things you need to work hard in school um you need to be competitive get straight A's take the hardest classes go to a good school and work hard in your job um and contribute Right. Um, So I would say to anybody who's looking to move ahead in their career, I would say be again, be a risk seeker. And so that means taking on different assignments, even if they're lateral, take them on, take them on, because um, it what do you have to lose? First of all, by taking on different assignments, it only helps you, um, you know, develop your network. I would say, Um, and especially people who are in their 20s. I mean, if you if you don't have to if you don't have to worry about um, childcare and things like that, I mean, take advantage of it. Take advantage. If there's an opportunity to do, um, you know, a foreign assignment, take advantage of it. If there's an opportunity to travel, take advantage of it. I mean, you learn. There's always never pass up an opportunity for learning. And even if I go down to a military base or whatever, and, you know, most military bases are not in exciting places, right? So some people are like, well, I only want to travel to this place or that place. I'm like, no, like you should 
like learn how to, you know, there's every, everybody has something to offer. So learn, you know, go, go to those places. It's not about the location. It's about the people that you meet. Yeah. That's what makes these places interesting to me. Don't rob yourself of the experience that you can have there. Um, yeah. So, so you, so, but someone in their twenties, you mentioned networking. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what have you done in the past as far as networking? How do you, you know, networking is, is huge, right? You can sign up for events and things, mm-hmm. but if you don't know any, anyone, you know, was that, what was that like for you? How did you start doing that? Yeah. And I'll tell you, I wasn't a good networker until I started this new company. So, um, you know, and then I had to be a networker, right, for business development. So in the past three years, I have really, really learned how to network. And, you know, I would pick one or two organizations where I thought I might feel comfortable. Um, that's how you start. That's how you dip your toe in the water with networking and go to the events and, you know, walk up and talk to people. I mean, you know, get a, it's a networking event. We're all there. Yeah, Well, that's the thing too, is like, you know, you go to these events and you're like, Oh, no one's talking to me. I'm so nervous. And then I'm like, well, you know, you have to do this it. Is, you-, you have to just go up to people. And one good tip that I learned was if there's a group of three people, right? Like an uneven group of people, like one person or three people walk up to them. Mm-hmm. If it's a group of two people, you they may be having some sort of conversation, conversation or something like that. That's, you know, you don't know what their relationship is. They may be having a, you know, a business conversation where it's a little bit awkward to come in. But if there's either one person or three people or five people, sit, you know, in a circle, you know, you don't run the risk of, you know, walking in on someone closing a deal or something like that, right? Yeah. There's one outlier person that's probably the third wheel or the fifth wheel or something like that. Exactly. That so then you complete that group, right? right. And then you can come right. in and, and do that. Yeah, because if it's three people, it's more than likely just more of a casual conversation. Yeah. Yeah, you were, I mean, you know, even even the advice you were given uh, sounded like focus on the skill set too. Like learn mm-hmm. anything you can, any way you yeah. can, volunteer for you know, whatever, because you don't know, even if it's lateral, because you don't know where that could benefit you. Um, I mean, yeah, just thinking back to my own career, I, I learned so many different things um, that at the time it seemed like, what am I going to do with this? But now right. I get to use it. You never know when you get to be useful with that one thing that someone needed um, that they didn't even know they needed. Yeah. And even, and even if it's an experience, right? So, you know, next week I'm going to Kings Bay, Georgia, right? <laughs> right. Try to control your envy, right? So I'm going to Kings Bay, Georgia for work, right? But you never know. Like I may meet a customer, right? You know, next week, or I may meet a colleague or someone I'm trying to do business with, right? That ha- also has work in Kings Bay, Georgia. It's a connection point, right? And that's the other thing I learned too working in sales is it is actually kind of important to have some hobbies. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't have a ton of time for <laughs> hobbies between my job and my kids, but, um, it is nice to to be well rounded because it's something people like to talk about other st- stuff yeah. besides work. They like to get to know people on a personal level. So, for example, the traveling that we used to like to do, um, that's something that you can connect with someone on. Yeah, where's the last the last place you've been on vacation? Peru. Oh yeah. Yeah. When was that? <laughs> Christmas. Oh, so yeah. just last year. On vacation. Yeah. yeah. The last work trip I took was to Detroit Arsenal um, in February, but the last actual vacation that we had was going to Peru, and I miss it so much. Really? I look through our pictures from the trip. 
Did you take the kids? Every day. Yes, we did. That's huge, right? They're going to always remember being able to go there and experience that. And that's just going to help them. Uh, Not everyone gets to to do that. I didn't travel I didn't. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My parents weren't. No. We weren't going. No, they came here. So like right. that's yeah yeah <laughs> um, <clears throat> no I get it but but I look back like if I ever have a kids of my own I I would try to expose them to as much as I can yeah and we're again it's we're in a position of privilege right because I know I mean I get it like it's super expensive to to go to these places and and let alone taking your entire family um so we're I I totally understand you know I'm not going to sit here and tell everybody yeah take your kids to Peru or whatever like when you know it may not be you know within everybody's price point um it's certainly you know um it's definitely but but my thing is is that it's really important to me to to have my kids be global citizens and to understand different people's cultures. Um, and it's funny because we took them to Ireland a couple of years ago. And I was like, just to be clear, I took my, I told my kids, I was like, just to be clear, you're the one that speaks English with a funny accent when <laughs> we go to Ireland. Like, just I just want you to understand yeah. Yeah. that, right? Like, you're the weirdo right with the accent there is no you know when you because we told them we're like well just so you know people in ireland they speak english but they speak it with what's called an accent because it was a couple years ago and my younger son i mean he he was six years old so we wanted to explain that you know we shouldn't make fun of people's accents we shouldn't you know laugh at them you know because kids will do stuff like that and they don't i mean they don't mean it maliciously right they just don't know and i told them i'm like just just so you know you guys are the weird ones with an american accent when we go when we're in in somebody else's country, right? So um, trying different foods, learning different, you know, speaking, having people speak different languages. Like my kids, you know, when we went to Peru, I taught them a couple basic conversational words in Spanish. Um, So, you know, if we were taking a taxi anywhere, they, you know, they'd come in, they'd jump in the taxi and say, hola, you know, to the driver. And it's, it's such a small thing, but it really kind of warms people up, you know? Um, So, um, so yeah, I, I think it's, you know, they they get this this opportunity to have incredible um you know, to have incredible experiences. And of course, I, I totally get that international travel, like I said, is super expensive. But even if you have the opportunity to travel domestically when things the open interest. back up, there's so I mean, there's so many different cultures within the United States and places to visit that, you know, um, the more that that I can expose my kids um, to different things and different people and different ideas um, and encourage them to to be risk seekers, um, the better. Yeah, I like that. Risk seekers. (laughs) Um, I'm going to borrow that. Um, But so so but aside from from traveling, what else? What what other kind of hobbies do you do? What do you like? Do you you and your husband have like a workout routine? Do you do any kind of orange theory or? (laughs) Um, Yeah. So um, so I used to do tons and tons of cardio. What kind of cardio? I used Everybody to do the cardio. stair step machine. Okay. The most evil, evilest of machines. Um, and um, in the house, or did you go to a gym? In in my community gym, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't do cardio anymore. Um, now I lift heavy. Yeah. Okay. What kind of lifting are you doing? Um, heavy for me. Right. To be clear. No. I, <laughs> Not yeah. heavy for a normal. Yeah, I got all human excited. Like, right. <laughs> right. You're Just, deadlifting four hundred five. Nice. Right. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> so um so yeah I love I love to lift heavy I love those workout machines the leg lift machines and and the the ab machines and so I do that because um it helps me burn stress um it's actually it helps you know your metabolism um and it's definitely I encourage all women um again to to consider um lifting um, rather than cardio, because with cardio, I mean, you just, it, it's good. You burn calories. I get it. But lifting actually changes your shape, your mm-hmm. body shape. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I am a testament to the fact that like a lot of people think that like if women lift heavy, um, they're going to get muscular. I'm the least muscular person you'll ever meet. So I'm a testament to the fact that that's just simply not true. Right. Um, it changes your body shape. It's 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 good for women to do that because it increases their bone density. Um, and I and I encourage also women to do it because it's a it's a form of stress relief and um, it's something that you can do relatively quickly instead of spending hours and hours running to nowhere um, yeah. on you know in yeah. cardio right and because you get on that cycle of oh I'm on a diet and um, you know I'm 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 counting my calories and let me go burn off all you know I ate something so let me go burn off all this you know these calories on an on an exercise machine or running outside. And I'm like, you know what? Um, I don't diet and exercise. I eat and train. Yeah. Because a lot of that isn't centered around um, a healthy lifestyle. It's centered right. around shame or guilt. Right. right. Some sort of, you, you feel guilty about what you ate because you feel shameful about something you look, about what you look like. I, I, I mean, I, I was just having this conversation with another guy. Um, and, and a lot of guys don't talk about this, but uh, the body dysmorphia, the body mm-hmm. shame, mm-hmm. that's, nobody loves these handles. Like, I don't know where they came up with this this phrase, like, love handles. It's not a real thing. <laughs> it's not a real thing. Nobody wants them. But when you have them, right? Or just you, you can be working out and it's, it's I would just constantly look for the next thing that was wrong. Um, I actually, I mean, I lost quite a bit of weight. Uh, I was, but you see the height that I am now. I was uh, 242 um, in 2017. So, um, so I get that. Right. That resonates with me a lot. But um, you mentioned something that's very important that it's you're not eating cake and then going for a two mile run. You didn't actually accomplish anything. And actually, the psychology that you're training your brain to understand with centered around food and exercise probably is 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 way more harmful um, than than the sugar, or the calories from that cake. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you found, because it, it sounds like you have some sort of workout routine and you're doing it for your body, you're doing it for your psychology. You mentioned stress. How have you found getting into that workout routine, changing the way that you show up to work and that you show up to situations and you show up as a leader in your, in your position? Like I, you know, this being recording in your office for this podcast, I woke up this morning, I did my routine. I have a morning routine mm-hmm. and I'd like to get, you know, what yours is, if you have one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, working out. I, so I wake up, I work out, uh, I do CrossFit, CrossFit Fairfax, if you're, if you're looking for a spot. Um, I come home, I started doing this cold shower. Are you familiar with Wim Hof? I've heard of the cold shower. Yeah. yeah, Wim Hof, David Goggins. These are some of the guys that I listen to, um, and and big big proponent of the cold shower. So I did that. I have a prayer and meditation routine that I've developed, and I would like to get some information from you about that, like just or you know whether or not you have one. Um, I found it helpful. Some journaling. That's just kind of how I set the stage. It sounds like a lot, but it doesn't take very long. It doesn't like these small 
actionable items that can be done in a couple minutes seem to set me up for 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 a better day. I don't know what better means in comparison to there's you know I have experiences throughout the day and they're either going to go one way or another and, and I'm going to learn something from them. Some are probably not what I wanted to happen, but that doesn't make them bad. Um, and that's kind of how I try to show up to every day. Mm-hmm. How is your workout routine? And and what is your morning routine? And how has that prepared you to show up? Because this is a pretty significant size company and it's a significant responsibility. So the person you show up as is very important. Mm-hmm. How have you, what have you been doing or how, how do you make sure that that person that shows up is the best person she can be? Yeah. So um, my morning routine is, you know, I get up in the morning, I do drink coffee. Um, so that's not, uh, that's one vice I have not been able to kick yet. So I do have two cups of coffee in the morning. Um, so I drink that. I kind of start to come alive. I look at my, um, Pinterest board, which I call daily hustle and that's full of motivational quotes. Is that like a vision board? Do you do one of those? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, yeah, it's like that. So it's got, you know, quotes, it's got prayers, it's got everything, you know, that I need to get myself motivated for the day. And it's electronic. So it's easy to mm-hmm. look at. Yeah. It's on my phone. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I look at that. Um, I, you know, I make my kids breakfast. Um, I juice in the morning. Um, so, you know, um, make green juice, um, in the morning, uh, start off, start off right w- with that. Um, and then lately I've been trying to do intermittent fasting, trying, is, is the key word here. Um, so, you know, I, I've actually, I, I have the green juice and then I try to not eat until 10 o'clock. Um, so, um, so been trying to do that. Um, when do you stop eating the night before? See, you're supposed to do it 10 to 6. You're only supposed to eat in an eight-hour interval, but mm-hmm. I do get really hungry at night. So I will eat, um, I'll eat like a snack, like at like 8.30 or 9 o'clock. All right, so you're getting you're getting 14 hours of fast, right? You're doing the green juice, so you get calories, but that's still liquid. You're not breaking your fast necessarily. Right. You're yeah. getting nutrients, exactly. but that I mean, you get nutrients from water. So, like, if right. you're drinking water, yeah. you're kind of doing the same thing. Yeah, and if I'm super hungry, I might have like a, a pear or an apple or something. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, but I cut you off. All right, so so you you juice. Yeah, so I juice um, for you know I make juice for me and my husband. Uh, my kids have refused to do the juice mm. um, so yeah, far. Yeah, yeah, they're definitely um, in revolt as it as it pertains to juice, and I don't blame them because I mean it's it's tough. I mean no kid the wants green to do that. juice is is really tough, but it's a great way. I mean, juicing is a great way to um, to get like this huge shot of vitamins and minerals that frankly you're just not gonna be able to get by eating so i think it's important to eat vegetables too right for that bulk um but um so i get when people are like oh juicing's stupid because you know it it gets rid of you know all the bulk and and the roughage that you should be eating and 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 um juices it all up you know and i was like yeah i get that but the thing is like i'm not going to eat like an entire head of romaine lettuce right Right. um so um you know throughout the day right every single day so again it's more about the vitamins and the minerals that you would norm never normally get you get the nutrition that you wouldn't ordinarily have just through your eating and honestly it's quick because i don't take a lunch break um i just you know and and i how long have you been doing that is that is that just your system you come in do you yeah you come in at the same time every day uh yeah so our standard business hours are eight to five um, so yeah, the duty day starts at eight o'clock, um, ish. I mean, I'm, I'm up 
well before that. But um, yeah, the duty day starts at eight o'clock um, here at Chaniga. And, um, you know, but and then I just usually work through work through lunch. Um, and because I work through lunch, I usually um, kind of cut off a little bit like at four um, just to um, basically prepare my kids dinner. And um, uh, then I usually log on a little bit later in the evening just to catch up on anything I miss between four to six. Right. Do you do you have a habit of going to sleep at the same time and waking up at the same time? Is that part of your system also? Yes. Um, I um, I go to bed early. Um, I go to bed by 10 o'clock. And um, I wake up, uh, you know, um, I do get a full eight hours of sleep. So um, on a good day, I'll wake up at 6 o'clock. Sometimes yeah. I wake up earlier. Do you get much alone time in the morning with, uh, you have two kids and a husband, so I don't know, but is that part of, you know, that's a lot part, of people? Yeah, yeah, that's part of why I kind of also like waking up early a little bit. Right. It's it's because if I wake up at the same time my kids wake up, it's it's like I'm like frazzled because then I have to like attend to their needs and then this way I can kind of drink my coffee and I have a little bit of serenity to get my mm-hmm. mind right before the kids wake up. Um, what do you do during that time when you're drinking coffee? Are you Do you journal at all? Or is that a thing? Do you read? I journal when, um, when I'm stuck mm-hmm. on a problem then yes, I will journal. Like if I have a strategic issue that I'm thinking about and I'm, I'm just totally blocked, then yes, I will journal. But mostly I look at my Pinterest board and I do look at my calendar for the day um, just to get my mind right um, because I have so much stuff going on every day that I need to look at my calendar daily to say, okay, this is you know, what I'm going to have to tackle today. Right. You have to have a plan. So your Pinterest board what are some of these quotes and where did you find them? Who like do you can you think of any off the top of your head or if you have them? Yeah, yeah. I um so let me see. So I just get them off like if you search on Pinterest for, you know, inspirational quotes and and things like that. Like this is probably this iceberg one is probably my favorite and I know our listeners can't hear it, but um to describe it, it's um it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier is that people don't see all the stuff underneath success. So it's the classic picture of the iceberg um, with, uh, you know, you see the success, but you don't see underneath the iceberg and you see, you know, the other things that are written are like failure, disappointment, adversity, rejection, sacrifice, you know, um, struggles, late night, risk. Um, so, and, and it's absolutely true because like I said, people, you know, even on social media, I mean, all you hear, all you see, and 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 it's not a criticism of, of LinkedIn or social media, but co- companies announce their their awards, right? They don't announce, you know, right. they don't announce when they lose, right? Any bids that they've lost, they announce their awards, um, and. Um, you see like our website it it shows you know all our projects that we've won it doesn't show you that you know for every project we won there's nine others that i competed for and lost right right yeah we we celebrate the success not the failures for some reason when it's it's actually you know i've only everything i've ever learned was from something not going well Mm -hmm. um i don't know that i learned as much from something going right because uh there was just no reason for me to change. Uh, if, if I'm, if I'm, right. if something happened, I'd never acknowledge it because I'd, I probably wouldn't even notice it. Not necessarily winning a contract. I mm-hmm. think that's like kind of obvious. Um, but it, it wasn't, 
it wasn't my natural uh, process to go back and when something good happened, let's say I won a piece of business to really look at what went well and what led up to that. Yeah. And we're getting better about that at Chaniga too. So we'll do what's called like a hot wash or like a lessons learned. And, and technically after you bid every single proposal, whether you won or lost, you are supposed to do that lessons learned. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that is something that we're starting to do even when we win. Um, to see why we win. And then also when I'm internalizing, like I have to give so many capabilities briefs to customers. And sometimes, um, you know, you have to be careful when you say things, people kind of take it, they might, you know, say, well, what do you mean by that? Or they'll take it kind of wrong. And and you kind of, I just always make a mental note that, you know, maybe, maybe that's not a phrase. I think, I feel like it's positive, but someone else may have a negative connotation who's working in the government for that. Because the government's perspective, that's our customer, right? So the government's perspective is very different from ours. Now, remember, the government, for for all intents and purposes, is a nonprofit organization, and they're interested in mitigating their risk, right? So where, I mean, so that's totally different, right? From my, (laughs) from my philosophy, right? Um, You know, uh, and, and how we run our company. We're a for-profit organization. Right. Um, that you want to win that contract. Yeah. That we, we've we got to take risks. I mean, we have to take risks. I mean, if you – I always kind of – I always kind of wonder um, with salespeople because I spend almost all my time on the phone or talking with people. And I'm like, how do you, you – you don't win deals in your office. How do you win deals in your when you're sitting in your office um, – and and everybody wants to kind of always be behind a keyboard, right? And I'm sorry. I mean, you got to get out. I mean, sales is a contact sport. So that's what I tell people. Like, I get nervous when I see people who are in sales behind their desk typing on their computer, mm. like, all day. I mean, email is good. Yes, we we have won things with written capabilities briefs. That is true. You can win work without necessarily talking to the government customer. Um, by just by submitting a, a bid, right? Um, but we are selling to people. We are people selling to people. And I and this is such a cliche, and I say this every time I do a podcast, and I'm going to say it one more time. People do business with people who they like and yeah. trust. Yeah. That's just the way it works. They can't do business with you if they don't know you. Um, and they can't trust you or like you if they don't get to know you. And it's not going to happen by trading emails. Right. And and I always say like, and, I, and I've said this before too, email is the worst form of communication because um, I, I heard somewhere in, in one of the Harvard Business Review podcasts that um, it said that the, somebody said that uh, 90% of communication is nonverbal. And so you're missing 90% of communication when you're writing an email. And email's really great, especially like now with COVID, when you've got kids, you know, my kids are at home. They're, you know, they're, they're still in the virtual school. And so I totally get that email is a wonderful thing right now is we can do our job and we can communicate with people without, you know, um, even if our kids are kind of sitting right next to us or making noise. So I totally get that post-pandemic email is a great thing. Um, and email is non-intrusive, right? Um, but sometimes you just got to pick up the phone and call people because they can't hear your tone. They can't hear your yeah. attention. And if it's ever going to be a difficult conversation, I never email it. I always yeah. call. If there's any chance that I think it could be taken diffi- like negatively or if it's we're trying to say, solve a problem, 
Um, it has to be a phone call. And that's part of the customer service. You mentioned that earlier. Also, if you have negative news to deliver to me, um, you, if it it just shows the other person that you respect them enough to pick up the phone and you're meeting it head on, that like, I value our relationship and I value um, that we can communicate with each other. And even though I know this isn't something you want to hear, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to mitigate it or take care of it, but I'm, I'm here to tell you directly. Mm-hmm. I'm not just going to send you an email right. or drop a note. That's like mailing a letter to say, you know, it's like, no, I showed up. Um, so what can you point to as the three biggest drivers of the company culture here? And, and, you know, if you can just share even just one experience that you've had in the past that have helped you shape that as, as being here. Yep. So I subscribe to the three H's, um, which is hungry, hustle, and humble. So um, I tell people, like, we just hired some some new um, staff members, and we were very straight up with them. We were like, look, if you like doing the same thing over and over again at a very relaxed pace, please don't come work here. Because, um, you know, we are not a, I mean, we are not a large company right? We the, the, we have a very lean staff, right? Not to the point where everybody's working 70 hours a week or anything like that. Nobody's, I mean, it, it's not necessarily in terms of the work hours, but um, you're going to be, every day is going to be different. You'll start working on task A, and then all of a sudden the government will drop an RFP and we'll have to start, you'll have to start working on task B. That becomes the priority all of a sudden. So if you're going to react poorly to rapidly changing requirements that are customer driven, please don't come work at Geneva. Please don't come work for us. Um, at least for cabs, right? I can't speak necessarily for all of Geneva because we do have larger businesses and they their pace may be different. But for cabs, um, you know, you're going to have to, if you're going to be part of our PMO staff, at least here in Lorton, um, you're going to have to be okay with that. And again, I'm all for work-life balance. I don't think that anybody should be working 60, 70, 80 hours. I mean, that's preposterous, right? At least on an extended basis. I strongly encourage my staff to take leave um, during our non-busy periods and and things like that um, because I don't think it's sustainable at all to work those kind of hours um, on on a regular basis, and I don't think people should have to. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I think it's ridiculous. So, um, yeah, I don't get impressed, um, with staff that's regularly working overtime or just first in the, I mean, that first in the office, last out of the office thing, it doesn't impress me. And to be dead honest with you, um, I, as the company executive and president, I actually should be working the most, more than the staff. Right. You know, I feel like executives should work more than staff. Yeah, you're in the leadership. Yeah. So, but the, the culture here is is work life balance, and and when you're when you're mm-hmm. here, show up. Right. Show up. Yeah. Be, work hard, play hard. Right. I'm okay. all about work hard, play hard. Um, you know, and and like I said, I mean, just if you if you want to um, learn and get exposure to a lot of different things and kind of go outside your boundaries and get some great experience, um, that's that cabs is absolutely 100 percent the place for you. And and we want work to be fun. Um, you shouldn't come in, you know, and not be able to laugh. We laugh a lot um, because it it's a way of relieving stress, right? Yeah. So we can be in a high-risk, stressful environment. But, you know, we laugh and, and make jokes and things like that. We have to get our stuff done. But Yeah, yeah. What would you say 
the difference or do you think there's a difference between belonging and fitting in mm-hmm. you know especially when it relates to your company culture you just mentioned laughing and joking mm-hmm. talk to me about that yeah that's that's a great that's a great question um so i'm the first um woman president at chiniga military intelligence operations support mios um <clears throat> i was a yeah so i was the first female president um you know at the time when i was appointed um all the other presidents were you know of a, of a different <laughs> group, right, um, and fit into a certain mold. I did not fit into that mold at all. And um, I didn't try to, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I didn't try to dress in a masculine way when I had to go into these meetings. I just dressed in what I felt was professional and comfortable. I didn't try to change my personality or, quote, unquote, act like a man. Um, but I, I came in. I wanted to learn from my peers. And, um, you know, I started working hard and we started having success. And, you know, it's funny because, and I tell my operations manager all this all the time, people want to help you when they see you helping yourself. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I've received a lot of um, help from my peers at Chiniga who are further along in the 8A program or have more resources because they are, you know, they're large, they're running large businesses versus startups. And I think the reason why is because they, they see us working hard to help ourselves. So if I were to come in and say, well, give me this handout, give me that handout. You have so many resources and I don't have anything. I'm a newco. You need to help me. Um, that is not, in my opinion, a good attitude. But when they see us pulling ourselves up um, by our own bootstraps, then they feel motivated to help them. When I call to say, look, I've done X, Y, and Z. Can you help me with Q, right? Do you mind, yeah. right? Everybody um, loves a hustler. Right? <laughs> then, yeah, then I think people really respect that. So to answer your question yeah. on belonging and fitting in, because I haven't answered it, um, I, I don't fit in with my peer group, but I belong there because, um, we, I've run, I'm running a successful company. I've earned my seat at the table. Um, and I know that I'm respected by my peers. And you feel like you belong, right? It's not just that you're trying to fit in and, and it's almost fictitious. Cause I think sometimes people have, they've told me, you know, fitting in and, and, and belonging, the feeling of belonging means that they're respected by their peers. They, they mm-hmm. feel like they belong there. They don't have to try to fit in. I don't fit in at all. Yeah. I never will. I don't play golf. I don't, you know, have the same interests as them. Um, you know, I don't fit in. So yeah. I'm not going to bother trying. But I know that I belong here uh, at Chiniga with my peer group. Yeah. Okay. And you guys are, how, how many military folks do you guys hire uh, or do you have on staff? Uh, we have, um, I don't remember the percentage on, offhand, but it's it's extremely high. Yeah. 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 Big fan of the military. Yeah. You guys are too. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's right on your website, military friendly. We and, and yeah, just... we recently won um, an award. We actually won the 2020 um, best places to work from Washington Post, and uh, we won the military friendly one. I think the second year in the row in yeah. a row. Um, I love to employ um, prior military and also um, military spouses. So um, you know, especially many of the people that we employ, like on base. Um, are military spouses. Um, so, for example, we've got work in uh, several Navy bases in Japan and Guam and in Europe. And um, a lot of the folks there are folks that are, you know, there for, you know, a year or two or whatever um, that, are, that are there with their, um, with their significant other. Yeah. 
So if you can go back to one point in your life, when would it be and what would you change? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, or would you, right? Is there, yeah, is there I don't a point know that in time, I would. Um, is there a point in time in your life that you can go back to or that you, you thought about, um, you know, that you would do something differently or that you ever feel like, had I done this one thing, you know, now would be different or are you just kind of the person you are now is because of everything that, that added up and happened? No, I mean, I definitely look back, especially when I was in college and I was like, I could have handled that differently. I could have been more mature, you know, but I mean, frankly, who is, who, who is really mature in college, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm really blessed. Um, uh, you know, I always say my children are my biggest accomplishment. Um, so I, I don't think, um, there's anything that I would change. Um, I, I think I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. One of the things that I'm again, going back to that I'm really glad that I did, uh, that I look back and I'm like, I a hundred percent made the right decision was, uh, was choosing to leave the workforce after having our first child. Um, now that I look back on it, um, cause I didn't know, you don't know if it's the right decision at the time <laughs> when you do it. Um, but now I know 100 because I'll never get that time back yeah. again. And yeah. now my kids are growing up and I'm sad. <laughs> so, What's one thing that you want future Sonia to be proud of that you're working on now? Mm -hmm. um, so I um, am working on trying to pay it forward with um, some of the young ladies that work on staff with us, um, mentoring them, elevating them, right, um, to – to achieve what I feel they can be, what they may not even know what they have inside themselves. Um, so I do, you know, push, push them. Um, but you know, they definitely, um, you know, just, just basically impacting them in, in that way. I got a, you know, we just had boss's day. I got a really sweet card from, um, my operations manager, um, on boss's day. I didn't even know it was boss's day actually. And, uh, it was, it was a super sweet card. And she was like, you know, thank you for impacting me and for inspiring us and all your hard work. And, um, for also for seeing people for what they can be, not just what they are. Mm. So, um, yeah, so that definitely, um, you know, made me feel all the feels when I got that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, for sure. Well, thank you for, uh, I know we're getting, we're pushing up against time, um, but thank you for being willing to do this with me. Thanks for listening to DC local leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC local leaders on Instagram at DC local leaders or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate review and subscribe. If you're a business leader and have questions on your lease and how it impacts your business's opportunities to grow or have questions about the market, you can reach Philip directly at philip.nathram at transwestern.com. He'd love to speak with you. Until next time.
Yeah. 